thrilled today to be talking about Ford versus Ferrari. So uh, if I can have Paul Massey and uh, come on up. And Don Sylvester and Dave Giamarco, come on up, please. Paul, I haven't seen you since you won your Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. It was a joy to work on, definitely. Yeah, we had a couple of fun conversations about we that did, one, yes. didn't we? <laughs> Not every, like I said, people haven't seen this movie yet. I feel very fortunate because I, I got to see it at the Telluride Film Festival, which was actually the first time that anybody saw the movie. Um, and it's, uh, I can tell you, you know, you're in for a really fun experience when you watch this movie because it's, it's just a great kind of almost like an old-fashioned, just really entertaining movie with great characters. And of course, the thing that you can always expect uh, from a movie uh, from James Mangold is just impeccable craftsmanship. Um, all the departments in this movie are working at the top of their game. Uh, and, and the sound department is obviously no exception. Now, you guys have had a, a pretty good run with James. I think you guys have worked with him ever since it started with Walk the Line, right? Uh, back in like 2005? Yeah, I, I actually first met Jim in this room. Uh, we, he was mixing Girl Interrupted in the late 90s. And I did a little bit of work on that, but I wasn't the main mixer. And then uh, moved to Fox and uh, yeah, I've done six films with Jim now, starting with Walk the Line. And we've all worked with him Me before. Too. Yeah, I met him in 19, I mean, <laughs> 2005 um, with Walk the Line. That was my first experience. He's a, he's a pretty great guy to hitch your wagon to. He knows what he wants. And uh, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a great experience. Uh, it, to me, it's always, it's, it's really exciting to, to you know, witness a long-term collaboration between a, a director and a sound team. And I'm wondering if you guys can just talk a little bit about, about you know, how that work goes with Jim. How much, a, you know, what kind of a presence does he have on the mixing stage? Uh, you know, is he one of those directors that's, you know, on the mix all day, every day, or does he just come in for playbacks and say, oh, you guys did a great job, thanks. <laughs> um, neither. So <laughs> he, um, no, Jim's a delight to work with. He really, I, I mix the dialogue and music, so he gives me an awful lot of latitude in experimenting with music presentations to him. Um, and I feel like, you can do this, uh, a very nice sort of sparring back and forth with him in presenting ideas um, and having his input. And I always feel like at the end of a project with Jim, we've come up with something that neither one of us would have done on our own, but that he you know, collaboratively has, has taken us to another level. Um, and he, does, he doesn't sit there and go through every single little detail with you. He'll actually go crazy if he does that. He'll pace up and down. And, Every time you hit play, he'll be, yeah, but, but, but the door's too big. No, the car's too, sh oh, no. And, you know, I, you have to turn you're around. You're like, I'm only working on one thing at a time. I know. I have to say, you know, Jim, amount of times I've said to him, please, it's going to take me like five passes to get close to where you want. Just, you know, and he's like, do you want me to leave? Yes, leave. Um, but in a nice way. And he comes back, um, and he likes to see an overall presentation. And then we can take it to the next level. It's really a joy to work with. Uh, Don and David, can you talk a little bit about how you guys uh, collaborate and work together? Because Don, you're the sound supervisor. Dave, you uh, are the sound designer and you mix the effects with Paul, right? So how do, how do you guys uh, kind of divvy things up between you? Well, uh, I'm embedded in the, in the picture department. I think that's pretty, that's pretty common now. What that means is I'm, I'm in the room uh, a lot when Jim is making observations and notes. 
And if I'm not, I'm only a shout away, um, which is literally what happens. Dawn! And I come running, and he goes, here's my note. Do this, do that, do this, do this, do that. Thanks. And then I leave. So I have a very thick notebook of tiny little notes that I take 17 times a day. And uh, so I never miss anything because I'm always there, and it's great. And he'll, he'll forget the note, but um, I won't. So uh, that's one of the great things about working so close to him. And then also, he's kind of like, he, he, what he lets me do, or makes me do, is he wants to view a scene that's completely filled out with sound, music, right from the, from the very start, like the very first cut of the, of the, sh of the scene. It's going to have music and cars and sound effects and 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 then he'll give the notes. So I have to sort of pre-plan the roadmap of where we're going to go, and then he'll tell me you're going the wrong way, you're going the right way. But that's how he gives notes. He can't listen to anything unless it's completely done, as if it's a tiny mix, a tiny final, really. Um, and that's his, his pattern. It, he wants to think of it as a movie from, all, all, from the very inception of the scene. He wants a, a, a movie. And if it doesn't qualify as a, as a, as a good movie yet, uh, at least he'll have the, the chance to, to start giving notes from the, from the very beginning. And then Dave, you can talk. Um, well, Don started very early on, and then uh, Jay Wilkinson came on, he was also sound designing, and did the two of them did a lot of initial work and like getting things to the picture editors. And for Jim, I came on a bit later and then it was preparing these scenes that Don's talking about, getting things cut ready, get them over to picture, and then build the track in, the, in their Avid with what we had, get to a temp dub stage when we had a, a length, quite a bit of time to work with Jim and really kind of hone where this was going to go, and uh, that, and then we just built upon that, and built upon that until we got to the final mix, and and then started pre-dubs and finals. Yeah, but we made about a hundred finals in between. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about sort of, can you kind of walk us through sort of what the mixing process was on the show? Were there you mentioned temp mixes? Were there test screenings? You know, uh, typical kind of test screenings. How many how many temps did you do? And then and then how what was the what was the process and sort of timeline around the pre-dubs in the final? Uh, I think I've, we did one temp in February and another in March, and then um, so the first one was the big one, and and then I think we started pre-dubbing mid-April. And so it was just building on the track. The first temp was quite strong, and, and then we built upon that um, for final. And so when we started pre-dubbing, it was, you know, we were pretty close. We were well built, and then but he hadn't heard what we what we brought yet, what more we've added. So that was um, getting him in early on the pre-dub stage, having him walk in and hear hear what we'd done. I finished the first reel, and we showed him, uh, brought him in, and played him some clips from reel one. Just, just the sound effects. Sound effects with dialogue, yeah, temp yeah. dialogue and temp music. But uh, he heard it, and he loved it, and we knew we were off and running, going the right way. So it was uh, pretty exciting for us. In the beginning, in the beginning, we th we were 
Jim was obsessed with the length of the film. He thought it was too long. And so every day was like, what can we cut? What can we cut? What can we cut? And we were like, well, this is pretty important, and that's pretty important. And so our first test screening, um, they asked the audience how, you know, it's too long, right? And they went, no. And he was like, got it. Nothing's coming out. Yeah, I mean, the movie is what, two and a half, 240? No. 212, no? is it? Oh, 212. No, it's, it's in the, is it? Okay, I, w- I thought it was about yeah. two and a half, but I think I, you're right. you know, I saw that I, I could have taken another hour. I thought it was just I was yeah. I was that invested in the characters and it was it's great stuff. That's been the I think the audience reaction all the way through. Um, seems a bit formidable to to go in and watch a two and a half hour movie, but people just want more, which is great. Uh, would y'all like to see a scene? Yeah, uh, the first clip that we have is uh, from uh, it's uh, it's the Willow, the Willow Springs uh, Raceway scene from 1963. So, um, so the two main characters uh, in the film are um, Ken Miles and Carol Shelby, who are, are played by uh, Christian Bale and Matt Damon. So this is this is a scene. Probably is this from Real One? It's from early in the film, um, and and we're kind of establishing their characters and and who they are as as people. Um, uh, at the very beginning of the scene, uh, IRS agents come to uh, Ken Miles' shop, and uh, we, we learn that he's, uh, he's in kind of dire straits financially, uh, so that he's got a lot riding on this. And then, and then we go right into sort of a, this is kind of a preliminary trial race, uh, and, and uh, so you'll get a, this is really sort of the, f- um, the, the first sort of time that we see Ken Miles driving. Uh, so you'll get a sense of, uh, of, of, uh, who these two characters are and their interplay with each other and then um, um, the, uh, the, the, the way these guys handle these amazing race sequences. Do you want to say anything before we start about what's, what's the car that Ken's driving? Um, anything we need to set it's that up? It's a Ford Cobra. Okay. And, this, Ford and Cobra. this is early on in, in Ken's, he's um, um, not his career, but he's, he's, not a, he's not a known name really at this point. He's doing small circuits and... Uh, and we're just establishing the dynamic between Matt Damon and Christian Bale. Uh, we haven't gotten into any of the big corporation deals with, with Ford or Ferrari at this point in the film. Great. Let's, uh, let's roll the first clip. you want to watch more <laughs> it's really extraordinary work um, 
There's a lot of racing in this movie. <laughs> there is. Uh, we're going to show some scenes from the very famous Le Mans race a little bit later. But how of uh, the the the, the running length of the film, um, I, I feel like there's a good at least 30 or 40 minutes of the movie that is in race sequences, especially the Le Mans scene at the, at the end. is that's a, that's a big part of the last third of the movie. Yeah, Le Mans is about 45 minutes. Le Mans sequence is 45 minutes long. 45. No, I think it's longer than 25. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go with Don on this one. <laughs> How do you build a race car sequence that's, that's that long and keep it interesting well it is 24 hours <laughs> well, but no i mean but for building a bit you know you're making a movie building a, a movie sequence for an audience which is race car driving how do you modulate and how do you how do you approach it and keep it interesting for a good length of time well that the the sequence that we're talking about at the end of the at the end of the film which is the uh, you know what everything's building up to the main le mans race is really about four acts uh, as you as you start to d dissect it, and we had to spend an awful lot of time going through. Like in that sequence, there there was no music going on apart from the little internal moment. Um, but in the in the large forty-five minute sequence, we had to sort of break it down into where where do we need the excitement to occur, um, both musically and from the effects standpoint. And when does the race become emotional and, and, not, and hopefully not boring? Um, be, you know, obviously at the beginning of the race, there's uh, everyone's full on, huge cars, huge music, it's very exciting, people trying to get into the lead. But as the race evolves, we get sort of 10 hours into a 24 hour race, you can't keep that level of excitement up. It just becomes incredibly boring for the audience and, and tedious to listen to. So. We had to really pick our moments, Dave and I, uh, in the final, to weave the music in and out and see where we're going to um, take over with emotion, or whether where we're going to take over with pure racing, um, and and just lead the audience into the the uh, feelings that Jim wanted to uh, portray, while all all the same at the same time, hopefully making it uh, build from the beginning of the race to the end to a peak. Uh, certainly emotionally. Um, while it's obvious that the, you know there's a lot of racing, there's a lot of car sounds and all the rest and excitement in the film, which is great, there's also an underlying character development and um, uh, story about people that, that carries the film through from top to bottom. And kudos to Jim for, for, for writing that and to, to allowing that to happen. Um, so we took a long time, is I guess the, long, the short answer, we took a long time going through sequences, taking out music, taking out effects, recompo recomposing music, um, going with emotion or going with raw effects um, to try and shape that in the final. Well, there's a wonderful moment in the scene that we just showed um, where I think part of what you're talking about too is you have to modulate, right? You have to play with the dynamic range. And there's that, that, that really lovely moment um, when you're really in the thick of the race and things are heating up and then you almost pull most of the effects away. You go very sort of internal into Christian Bale's head, and you're, I'm hearing, I'm hearing his breath really present through his nostrils. And I love sound design that does that sort of like, that puts me into the emotional experience of the character. And the movie's full of moments like that. Yeah, and that one's a little bit odd, out of context for you all now, but it relates to an earlier scene in the film and uh, hopefully makes sense when you see the film in context. The, the funny thing is that Christian saw, he came into the cutting room and he saw that scene and he went crazy. He said, that's, we need that, more of that. And Jim goes, oh yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, uh, what was, what? So did you do an ADR breathing session with uh, Christian Bale just through his nostrils? Oh, he's great. He's so good at breathing. (laughs) Well, we ended up putting that internal moment into other scenes in the film. So that wasn't actually part of the original conception for the, that one was those uh, but you found more moments but he during. said like that that's a great that's a great thing he said we should do more and Jim went yes we should do more and we did do more yeah uh, Don can you talk a little bit about uh, I mean what must have been just the monumental challenge of of building like you know putting together the car sounds and the library for for the film well, I have to give uh, my secret weapon uh, credit. Jay Wilkinson got on early and tackled the cars. and um, But I knew from the beginning that we had to get the real cars. I mean, Jay was doing a fantastic job of selling the race, but I knew if we didn't get a GT40, if we didn't get a Ferrari P3, we'd be, uh, we'd be uh, remiss. Well, because you know there are people who will know <laughs> I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for them to come around an alley and say that wasn't a GT40. It was. This one was. But we we uh, looked for GT40s around the, the world, and we found all the GT40s, and I think we contacted as many as we could. And the funny thing is that if you owned a $30 million car, you don't want people to record it and drive it around a racetrack. You have men climbing all over it with microphones. You don't. You don't want that. So a lot of people said no, but we did find a guy in Ohio who built his own GT40 out of real GT40 parts, and um, actually Ford came and inspected it and authorized it as a legitimate GT40 and gave it a serial number. Really? Yeah. It's That's amazing. Bolted on his door, and um, he let us record that. So we got our GT40, we got the, it, it was very, very authentic. And so that made us really happy. And then we, you know, then we found a, a Ferrari. We, we couldn't find the real Ferrari. Uh, we found a pretty close Ferrari. We found a 59 Testarossa uh, V12. And we recorded that and we had to do that in Florida because even though the guy owned it in, in Georgia, the ordinances in Georgia wouldn't let him race it because it was too loud. So we, <laughs> and we went great. We went that car. So we took it down to Florida and we recorded it there. So those are the two, the two main cars. And I knew that once we got those cars, um, we had the authority to actually say these are real cars. What was your, what was your secret sauce? How did you mic them? How did you get those recordings? Oh, uh, we used one mic. It's just, just one mic. It's a, no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> go ahead, Dave. Uh, John Vassal was the location yeah. recorder, and he went out and recorded. And Eric Potter. And Eric Potter, right. And they mic'd the cars. They had mics on transaxles. They had mics inside. Um, there was all stationary mics outside on the, on the track. And so the cars were quite wide. I had 16 channels of sound for the car interior. Or, and similarly for buy. So it was really, they did a great job. It was all really well recorded and uh, gave us lots to work with. Yeah. Was this a Dolby Atmos mix from the beginning? You guys knew yeah, what you were going to do? Yeah, it was at Native Atmos. Uh, and so how did that, what did that allow you to do um, working natively in Atmos in terms of, you know, like the directionality of the car buys is so stunning in the, in the film? Well, mostly, I mean, it was when we were working in them, 
in my room, it's seven to one. So I'm just thinking what's going to go in Atmos when I'm when I'm working, and so I'll have all my my sessions built, and then I'll have Atmos tracks down the bottom. And when I get on the stage, when we got to Fox, it was um, then I could take things that I wanted to put in the Atmos track. So kind of as we were going through, I'm thinking what I'm going to use in Atmos, what I'll utilize it for. So, so you were working primarily like with seven one beds, and then you would you would you would keep a certain number of of uh, of effects uh, that you wanted to use as objects, and when you got to the stage, you would start to move those around. Yeah, I mean they were they were used in a 7-1 bed as well and now I know where what this is going to sound like in 7-1 as well when we do the fold down but knowing I would you know tag it or color code it that I'm going to put these in the in Atmos object tracks and I used it for crowds and winds and rain um, things that went over our heads you know yeah we flew a plane through the theater that's a great sequence eh? yeah. <laughs> it sounded just like that no, and, and then musically, that clip, obviously, the cl I think I just realized the clips that we're playing today don't have a lot of music in them. But um, <laughs> it's not that we the, have anything against music no, or composers. No, no. <laughs> uh, but, but we're really we're really proud to show off the uh, actually the extraordinary actually, sound no, design actually film. there's music all over this next one. Yeah, okay, I'll take it back. But what I was trying to say was uh, with the music, I had great flexibility from from uh, Marco Batrami and Buck Sanders, who were the uh, composers, and then through Ted Kaplan, who was our editor music editor, um, I got ev all the instruments completely separate and was able to go through uh, pre-mixes that I did at my studio where I put everything into 5.1 format but kept everything very, very wide and then took that to the final, spread into a 7.1 bed and then started allocating Atmos as needed. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what, what sort of Atmos work did you do with the music? What, what did you use as objects that you would either, did you, uh, did you primarily put things into the overheads or what did you do? It's no, not overheads. I always do a seven-one bed. I never do any. Um, I never use the plus two, um, and then anything I use that goes up there, it becomes an object. Um, but it's environmental, um, environmental parts of the recording of the score, um, and delays. Primarily delays. Uh, I, I do a lot of. There's a lot of singular guitar work in the in the score, where there's two guitars playing off of each other, which I kept principally towards the left and principally towards the right as a general template. And then I did a lot of diagonal uh, across the room um, panning of delays and, and reverb treatments for each one of those so that we're not just going front to back but we're actually moving across the room and utilize the objects for those also. And that just gives it, opens it up and gives it a sense of size and space. A sense of size, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of curious, uh, were there any usable production tracks that came in during the race car sequence. I can, I can imagine that, that, you know, that must have been really horrible conditions for the, the poor production sound mixer. Well, uh, we had to take away all the production of the cars because they were all kits. Um, they all had Mazda engines or Chevy engines or something like that. And although they were big engines, they weren't the right engine. So with that, when those came out, we had to fill everything back in, and sometimes the dialogue left. But a lot of times the dialogue was cleaned up pretty well by using some uh, isotope. Um, and Harrison. And, and Harrison, and a guy, we hired a guy to do it. <laughs> he was good. He's got some skills. Yeah. But the cars, the cars had to be completely built from the ground up, and... Um, 
And also, what's interesting is that uh, this was shot in the desert. This is not shot in Le Mans. And there was no crowds. And so when you see the film, you'll see 100,000 people there. They were all added later. And uh, it's just beautiful to see what they can do visually. And so we had to, we had to make that. And so what you're describing, it's almost like a little bit like an animated film. Like you, once you took those, the kit car sounds out, you really had very little, it was a dream come true everything. for me. Yeah. Because I got, it was like a blank slate. I mean, you couldn't use the cars. And then of course the shots of them inside the car, that was just a rig, you know, and there was all this kind of going on. I'm good at, I'm good at sound, right? <laughs> and, uh, so everything had to be, everything had to be cleaned up. Although I will say we, we took an awful lot to, Polly McKinnon was the dialogue editor, and between her and Don, um, we, we managed to take pretty much all the production that was in any way usable yes. into the final mix yes. as extracts uh, with ADR as alternatives. And once we got the, the balance of the, di of the music and the, um, and the effects in the bigger races, a, quite a bit, a surprisingly a large amount of the production was able to be used well, if, she if the performance was better. Sorry. She actually took some engines out of the dialogue, which was unbelievable. What she could—I mean, this really loud engine she pulled out, amazing. She did a great Kudos job. Kudos to her. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Uh, let's take a look at the second clip. Uh, so this is um, this is we're kind of in the middle of the of the Le Mans race at this point in the clip. Um, it's uh, it, uh, like like uh, uh, Paul was saying, this is a it's a twenty four hour car race, and we're we're deep into it. It's the middle of the night, and of course, um, just to for some added acoustic fun, it's in a terrible rainstorm. Uh, so you got a car race in the middle of the night in a big rainstorm, and. Um, uh, 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 Carol Shelby does a little shenanigans with the Ferrari's uh, stopwatches. Do, do, we, do we need to set any, anything up? Well, what, what you're about that? to see is true. These are these are little known facts that we uh, once Jim learned about what Carl what what um, Carol Shelby would do in the pit. He included it in the film, so this is a great sort of reveal. There you go. Let's take a look at this uh, second clip. In. He's not batting on a full wicket, that one. Easy, Dan. Oh, bloody hell. You arsehole. I'd love to hear from you about some of the challenges of putting that sequence together. Um, that crash of the sign going over was tough. <laughs> we could never get it right for Jim. He was, something was, we started before that there was a sign there. The car went, goes off and the sign was supposed to be there. And so 
it, it hit the hay bales and it hits something in the, and it's like he needed something hard there and we kept tackling and kept tackling. Then we the visual came and it just we we went after that for a while till he was ultimately happy. I hope. <laughs> you never know what what's going to be the the you know the the thing that is the troublesome element that takes a long time to come together. That's especially with with Jim, I find, because some things I would think that would be big big things he's great with, and then it'll be little things that you know I got to figure out what he's after to really. I think he was really like pushing for the wood of the sign through the engines and the rain and the hay, and you know he'll pick certain sounds that he just wants to promote, and uh, it's hard sometimes. I, I imagine that's the case, and I'm I'm, I'm curious to hear. Um, you know, that was a pretty that you know the music is driving uh, pretty. You know, it's 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 pretty present in that scene, and obviously it's just wall to wall sound effects as well. So. Um, can you talk a little bit about like how did you guys work together on the stage? Like, do you, were you slapping each other's hands away from the faders and and what's you know how do you, how do you, how do you decide which is going to step forward in any given moment, the music or the sound effects? Well, little known to Dave, I had a master fader for the effects, so I was just pulling it. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> um, on your phone. Obviously, we have to. The, the The music in that sequence was very very rhythmic. It had an awful lot of low end in the in the bass pattern and the drum pattern. And yet Dave had, you know, the, the roar of the engines. He had all the suspension issues going on. He had the, the transience of the foot pedals coming in and out. Um, I ended up having to, th throughout that section, well, we, ju we just worked very closely together with it. But it, from a music standpoint, I had to pull out an awful lot of the low-end rhythm in that sequence and sort of trick the audience into thinking the music's still going by using the top end of the guitars and the hi-hat and such. Um, while the the engine roars were were taking that that frequency spectrum, uh, there was just no point competing. And and likewise, he would let go when there was a melodic pattern that needed to come through. And and for me too, I'm going against always working against Paul's music, and then trying to hit key things. So it's not just engine all the time. I want to hear the rain and the wheel well, like just things that are quick in and out that can play with the music and not just be loud and big against music with engine all the time so it was kind of working that way and until it feels till it's feeling really good well that kind of detail and finesse i mean it just takes time right it's so i'm i'm curious Dave, for you like how much you know you were sort of you were building your tracks in 7.1 kind of pre-mixing even before you got to the to the stage but like how much time did you pre-mix uh before you guys got to the final stage and did you have access to the music during that period at all or it was just going to be a surprise for you when you got on no I, I had access was the temp music for spotting purposes but the score came in when we finaled that and we had um three weeks to pre-dub on in the big stage at, on the ford stage um were you guys pre-dubbing at the same time on two separate stages or were you okay yeah i was mixing in my studio you were you were dialogue pre, you were pre-dubbing dialogue and yeah. you were pre-dubbing effects at the first for three weeks on your own before you came to the final mix stage. But I mean, it sounds like a long time, but it is a two and a half hour movie and there's a lot going on. And then the final mix was how long? Uh, one day. Six weeks, I think. Well, with, with all one of the reviews day. and all of the print masters and all of the deliverables, it was six weeks. So take a couple of weeks off of that for deliverables, it's about a month. But we didn't, we, um, Aaron Downing, the post supervisor at Fox on the film, uh, was insistent on just trying to keep people civilized. So we didn't do long days, um, which was fan fantastic. We didn't really do weekends. 
it was Monday to Friday and it was about eight o'clock, sort of the latest. Um, I did prior, prior to the final, I did two weeks on dialogue ADR and group and then five days on the music before I got to the final. Yeah. Well, it's, I, there's, that's great because I mean, the, it's, there's so much material in here and it tends to be a little loud, loud. It's, it's good to, you know, have those normal work days just to prevent burnout. Yeah. And fatigue. We were really grateful for that. Yeah. It helped. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I was just going to say for a scene like that too, the great thing was that we would have the time alone to, to do it and build the track. Like we do a faders up run with Jim in the morning, present the reel, and then we would go and work. He would go away. We would work on it, get it to a place where we're close and comfortable, and then finesse when he come, would come back. And an interesting thing is they're always adding rain. That's uh, no, that's visually added. Um, so uh, there was points where we went really heavy with rain visually, and so when we matched it sonically. Um, Jim didn't like it. He just—it was eating up everything, and so they reduced the amount of rain in the picture. That really—that's yeah. this is twice a day we've heard this yeah. that they actually changed the picture to make the sound better. Yeah, I think this is a trend that we should embrace. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> uh, should we look at the last clip? Sure. So we're, we're, we're going a little bit out of order. This, uh, this chronologically in the film, this last clip happens before the Le Mans race. Um, this is, um, I, I want to set this up properly. This is my favorite scene in the movie. Um, so uh, they're embarking on this huge project, uh, for the Ford Corporation, to build this car that will compete at Le Mans and compete against the, the Ferraris who have had a tight grip on this race for a long, long, long time. So they're well into the process. Uh, uh, but there's a little bit of an internal power struggle happening between Carol Shelby and some executives at the Ford company. So uh, they're kind of coming out to LAX to where Shelby and his team are building the car uh, to kind of do a power play, and, uh, and Carol Shelby surprises them and uh, gives uh, Mr. Ford a, uh, an impromptu ride in his very expensive race car and kind of gives him the ride of his life. So let's take a look at this scene. Just to hold me right there, and you take my hand. Oh, God! Sat on my nuts. We're gonna build the next one for comfort, don't you worry. Open the door. Sorry, sir, if you just give me a moment. Open the door! You ready? The name on the middle of that steering wheel should tell you that I was born ready, Shelby. Hit it. That a boy. Great, great performance by Tracy Letts as four. Definitely. Um, I think that, you know, uh, that scene also gives you a sense of like, 
you know, it's when we talk about this movie, it's really easy to focus on. Oh, let's talk about the big race car scenes and like, but there's great character and it's great story and it's great storytelling and 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 sound serves an, an amazing part of that process. Um, so, uh, talk a little bit about putting that, you know, because obviously you want to you want the audience to have the same experience that Mr. Ford is having in that moment. So, how do you put the sound together for that? A lot of a lot of low end, obviously. <laughs> Well, first you, first you take away the, the production car, and then you add the real car, um, and then you just, you know, crank it to 11. <laughs> um, and I think part of the powerful thing about that is when it stops, you get the sense of what it really was. Um, and we're gr really fortunate that, that when we s turned off the engine, um, the airport was still there. But it was not. Uh, it it was just air, basically. There's, there's a great. I'm not sure if anyone noticed, but at the very end, when Ford is crying, um, that is all production, obviously, and and right. we try to enhance and keep with every single one of his little subs. But back deep in the background, there's a single-engine sort of Piper Cherokee flying around and that was live production that happened to be happening at the time um, and it's just a wonderful little moment of this the scale of this massive monster of a car down to a tiny little engine that's going over the top as he's crying and realizing how difficult it is to control this machine so it's a great moment i love that moment jim says yeah take that plane and lower it or you know, raise it or just it's like no it's just right there jim it's, we didn't add it we, we actually tried to remove it yeah. For a while, and it was just—it was ridiculous yeah. because the the crying was so wonderful. To was hold so perfect. On to. Yeah. The irony is that that air, that Piper airplane probably had less ho horsepower than the car that they were driving. <laughs> yes. <around>. Uh, <laughs> uh, before we open up for questions, any 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 fun final stories that you want to tell about the the about the mix process or working with James? It's always an adventure working with James. Um, he's a, he's a joy to work with. He truly is. He's so smart. He's uh, so about storytelling. Um, he challenges all these different genres from, you know, Logan to Walk the Line to 310 to humor to this film. Uh, he does everyone's um, with such finesse. And uh, he's, he's truly interested in sound, more than interested. He's, he's passionate about sound and it's, it's just great to work with him. He's a director who seems to know how to use sound really as a as a storytelling tool. I didn't even congratulate you guys on Logan, but Logan is one of my, 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 really my favorite superhero movie from the past ten years or so. Great. Uh, let's open up and, say, and take some questions. Mike, do you have the you have a microphone? Any questions for these guys? Hey guys, thanks for coming out. Uh, I'm curious with the, all the amount of cars you guys had on the show uh, and the amount of recording, how'd you guys manage editorial wise and track layout? Uh, and being able to keep things interesting and from editorial to mix. Track layout. I kept, um, I had four pre-dubs for the GT40 and they were all 16 channels wide, four for the Ferraris. And then I had incidental cars, um, tires and suspension were all separate and um, crashes separate, design of, pre-dubs separate. So I had like 26 effects pre-dubs. And so that gave me, that was really helpful for me for separation wise. And I had uh, like 24 to 30 channels of props and 24 channels of feet. So I just kept my groups separate. Does that answer your question? Yeah. 
Hey, how's it going, guys? Congrats on a great sounding film. Uh, so my question was, um, obviously, you owe some amount of realism to the, the cars that you talked about in the, in the edit and in the design process. I'm wondering uh, if you, at different points in the, in the film, decided to enhance any of that with either elements from cars that weren't specific to those or whether you used like non-diegetic type design to enhance, to beef things up or make it more uh, sort of larger than life? Or did you pretty much try to, as a rule, stick to the raw stuff that you guys got from Eric and John? Well, I'm gonna say that this is pretty much a real deal thing. I mean, like in any movie, you're gonna augment certain areas that don't match the picture because you don't, when you're recording, you don't know how it's gonna be cut in. Um, there was a point where we were using other cars in the temps, um, yeah, very early on, and they and they were great, but uh, Jim kept asking for more and more and more, and I kept saying, well, when we get the real cars, then you can ask for more and more and more, because this is, we're asking for the wrong more at the moment, so. Yeah, all the cars running, as you know, for the GT40 and the Ferrari, that, that that's the cars. There, yeah. Some kind. Sometimes on the buys and things, we would enhance them just to for impact. But yeah. it's the cars running, by and large, for the most part. And the, the good news was that they those engines were dramatic and big enough on their own that they, they didn't need a lot of help. Yeah. The only the only issue was we really weren't allowed to take the cars onto a track and run them at 220 miles an hour. Because uh, A, the driver uh, was the owner and he wouldn't do it, and B, we didn't have a three-mile track to do it. So part of that was uh, trickery, you know, just to make it seem like it was going that speed. But they're the, they're the engines, for sure. Um, I'm curious about, like, how did you translate, especially in the first clip, like, it really felt like the car was far away, and then, like, it just had a lot of depth to it. How did you like translate that sound like in the mixing stage? Um, I, if it was in a long shot, we had exterior miking on cars, so it was it was probably used from perspective, and then I'd use some reverb and delays to kind of put some space in, around us. But trying to use mic positions that were would be applicable to where it was geographically on the track. That's, that's important because there's only really so far that you can go taking a close mic'd object and trying to give the illusion that it's way far away. It's really, it's really helpful to have that very variation in the miking positions when you're, when you're recording to have. Um, do you guys uh, deal with ear fatigue, like long scenes of um, motors and all that? Do you discuss that with Jim and how do you handle it? You're talking about ear fatigue, like from the audience. Like we don't want to exhaust exactly. the audience as they're going through the film. Exactly, like using silence or mixing trickery. <laughs> do Do you mean when we're mixing during, during days of mixing, or do you mean as an audience watches the film? Sorry. Yeah, for the audience. For the audience. Um, well, I think. Well, in terms of the mix itself, the mixed days, um, as I mentioned, we you know we purposely try to keep them to normal days and not go you know 15 hours a day. But also, we'll, we'll make sequences in, in DIM, um, and we'll bring the levels down, and, and Dave and I try to maintain a certain peak in a film. Um, don't, don't try to go you know, to what the technology is allowing us to do. 
Um, and then I, I think for the, from the audience perspective, it, it's what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, creating highs and lows within the, the emotion and the arc of the whole film. Um, a lot of that is to do with the, the pace of the picture editing so that you get sequences that are full on in your face and then we're into an office or a dialogue scene or a quieter moment. Um, but then when it is full on for a long period of time, we're, we're trying very hard to to weave in and out of effects and music especially so that we um, can carry the emotion more than just a flat out furious car race at all times because you just couldn't watch that. It's too, it's too much. Even when they're, we're racing, we're telling a story. So we're very plot heavy, even on just cars trying to beat each other in a race. There's a story going on that we're ever mindful of. Well, and one of the things that we, I didn't, I didn't mention this before, but one of the things I think um, I, I really hand to you guys uh, about this movie is these are these are they're, they're long race sequences. But I never, I never lost the geography. I knew exactly where I was. I knew which car I was in. I knew, you know, you guys did a really great job of, of guiding the audience through that experience. Um, and part of that is the editors, the editors did a great job. So, you know, we're, we're really grateful to them for that. Uh, as far as the car onboards went, um, you know, you had all these mic angles and were you trying to follow perspective when mixing, you know, from the intake or from the muffler, following camera angles, or are you trying to get a nice kind of overall mix character of each car and trying to kind of follow that through and how much of that was in the editing process and how much of that was just having availability to mix you know at the final um it was always going for the sound of the car mostly and what felt right for where we were um i had all the mics so it was a matter of deciding what i wanted to use where and, and what i wanted to lean on um that was done more editorially than um, then on the mix stage, I was kind of, I felt like I was pretty much there by the time I got to the mix stage. And then if I wanted to push something, I knew where to go for it. We got time for one more question. Um, the film obviously already sounds amazing and different than a lot of other, you know, race car films that we've seen throughout our lifetime. What, in your guys' opinion on this film, makes it different than all the, you know, other dozens and dozens of race car films that we've seen in the last few decades. <laughs> go into, did you purposely go into it thinking, okay, we're gonna try something different, try not to sound like every other race car film, or did that just kind of like naturally evolve into that? I'm gonna give credit to our director who did not want to make a race movie per se, uh, when you ask him what this movie is about, he said it's about two men and their friendship and the struggle they had against uh, the uh, corporate structure that was trying to uh, control their lives. Um, oh, and there's also cars in it. Uh, and I think that's how he approached the whole thing so that when we actually do a race, it's in co it's co context and it, we know why they're racing, we know who they're racing, we know what, what it means to the characters. And, and I think he brought that sensibility a mindful sensibility to us whenever we were doing any race race scenes yeah I, I would say um, you know for me the main difference is is a lot of other sort of racing movies you can kind of tell that the characters were kind of an afterthought like it's really just about how to how do we how to let's get to the next racing sequence but that's it's very different with Ford versus Ferrari these are really great characters and obviously as you can tell 
there are no finer actors like Christian Bale and Matt Damon are amazing in the film and as well as the supporting uh, actors as well um, so that's all the time that we have I want to thank these guys for coming out today and talking to us about Ford versus Ferrari thank you 